Thought Leadership Studio. You're listening to Thought Leadership Studio, the podcast that helps you master high-level positive mass influence to create distinctive business niches, captivate an audience, grow your following, and change the game by changing the frame with strategic thought leadership. Thought Leadership Studio. Welcome to Thought Leadership Studio, episode 36. An interview with John Seddon, the founder of the Vanguard Method and the Vanguard Group. Beyond command and control are breakthroughs for service businesses and marketing. And Beyond Command and Control is also the name of John's latest book. John Seddon is a British occupational psychologist and author specializing in change in the service industry. He's the managing director of Vanguard, a consultancy company he formed in 1985, and the inventor of the Vanguard Method. Vanguard currently operates in 11 countries, and Seddon is also a visiting professor at Buckingham University Business School. The Daily Telegraph describes him as a reluctant management guru. In full disclosure, I'm a big fan of John's work because it makes a big difference. Many years ago, when I was in the fitness business, I discovered that systems thinking made a major difference. It brought breakthroughs every time I managed to apply it, but I had a hard time finding ways to apply it that had some history of working with service businesses. Most of systems thinking was for manufacturing until I found the Vanguard Group and the Vanguard Method, which has developed very powerful ways of applying systems thinking to service businesses for major breakthroughs in sales improvement and cost cutting in morale, which is emergent from this, as the culture tends to get better when people work in a better system. And I found these things also apply to marketing, when marketing is considered part of a business and the media you create is considered a service you provide for people who pay with their attention ahead of paying with money. But before we jump into the interview, if you're listening to this on an app, you should also go to thoughtleadershipstudio.com on the episode page to find a partial transcript with some extra bonus content and resource links to things like John's books and John's website, uh, beyondcommandandcontrol.com. Strongly recommend it. So, without further ado, let's get right into the interview with John Seddon, the creator of the Vanguard Method. Thought Leadership Studio. Chris McNeil, host of Thought Leadership Studio, and I'm sitting here over Zoom with one of my heroes in business, somebody who's been a great inspiration and an incredibly innovative thinker in management for service businesses, John Seddon. 
founded the Vanguard Group, created the Vanguard Method. Good to see you, John. And good to see you, Chris. Maybe for our listeners who aren't as familiar with your work, you can give us a, a short rundown of high points that brought about this revolutionary way of looking at service businesses. Okay, well, um, all we do in Vanguard is, is help leaders of service organizations change their organization from a conventional command and control design to a systems design. You know, it was uh, Deming who first said to me, well, humankind invented management, the current system doesn't work very well, we should change it. Um, and he implored us to think about our organizations and systems. And I had, I basically spent my life working out, well, how do you do that for service organizations? And that's all we do. Well, there's a few pieces of the puzzle I think you bring to the table that can be pivot points for just about anybody in a service business. And one of them that really resonated with me, that, that light bulbs just went off, was the concept of designing to demand. Yeah. Which seems a simple concept. <laughs> until you realize you're bumping against all these hierarchical mental models of management that most of yeah. them have been brought up in and are surrounded by. Yeah. So you bring something that can bring about radical transformative change, something people say they want generally. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily do it in a way that fits the way they think it should be done. So you've got to do some belief change. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was being interviewed once by the BBC and the journalist said to me, oh, John, are you, what are you saying? Are you saying that people who run service organizations don't understand why their customers call or write, you know, what, you know, what? And that's exactly true. That's exactly true. You know, uh, the, the basic paradigm for a conventional command and control service organization is to treat all demand as work to be done. You know, they worry about how much work have I got, how many people have I got, how long do people take to do stuff? And that's everywhere. And it's to miss a fundamental issue. If you actually understand demand from a customer's point of view, there are two major types. The first is the reason we exist. I call that value demand. You know, can you fix a problem? Can you help me? That kind of stuff. Uh, and then there's failure demand, uh, which is which I defined way back very carefully, it took me ages to settle on the definition. It's basically demand created by a failure to do something or do something right for a customer. Now, imagine this, you know, I suppose you run a typical telecoms company. You find in telecoms and in other companies too, failure demand can run at over 80% of demand on the front end of your system. What's that doing? Well, it's just robbing you of capacity. Right. So you kind of twig. Actually, if we could design a system where the service worked, we'd increase our capacity. We'd also increase sales. We'd also lower costs. You know, so it's a, it is a fundamental shift uh, away from the way we treat demand at the moment. Yeah, it's, it certainly attacks the very core of the roots of hierarchical top-down thinking as, as I understand it. And so to me, there's a couple levels of persuasion going on. And my understanding from studying your work, and I've studied it quite a bit for years because discovering the Vanguard method was a breakthrough for me. And I was in the fitness business at the time with a chain of one-on-one -on -one training studios, so a service business, one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. service business. And 
every time I managed to apply anything from systems, systems thinking, even just doing causal looping to kind of understand internal issues and things like that, it made a tremendous difference. And it wasn't something I would have thought of without using these tools. But there didn't seem to be anything in systems thinking for service businesses, except for this, the Vanguard method and yeah. how you took the things that Deming did, um, what Toyota <laughs> did, and applied them to services. And yeah. understanding is you work on beliefs through helping managers encounter the toxic nature of their own beliefs by studying their business as a system. That's correct. That's correct. If, yeah. if somebody's listening to this and wondering, what does that mean to me? to study my own business as a system. Well, how would you explain that? Um, and I know you probably say yeah. study it as a system. Yeah. How do you do yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, let me, let me come to that. Let me just say, first of all, that, you know, in my early period when I was trying to work this out, I read all of the systems thinkers I could find. Okay. And, you know, so Bon Bantelurfi, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Peter Senge, Wasaykov. Uh, mm. uh, I mean, more more recently, people like Dave Snowden. Uh, and I, you know, I, what I was concerned about is, well, what do you do on Monday in a service organisation? And nobody helped me with that. I had to work it out. Nobody was doing that. Nobody was thinking about that. Um, you know, so let's come to what do you do on Monday? You know, if you were a leader in, in an organisation, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you things that are counterintuitive. You know, like if you, if as you do, you manage a lot of activities, though it's cost that will drive your costs up. If I if I tell you things like that, it will piss you off. Um, you know, I, I might, I might, if I tell you things like standardising work, specialising work, having protocols, those kinds of things, that will that worsen your service, it'll increase your cost. You know. These are the things you do every day, and that just piss you off. So I don't tell you that. What I do is I, I invite you to come out, and we will organise with you how for you how you're going to study your system, okay? And you learn all the things that otherwise you would have disagreed with, and you can't deny them because they're right there. You know, they're right there in front of you. You can now see all the costs that you're creating by the system that you're actually running. So these are counterintuitive truths that help you because now if you can see, if you see that other way of looking at things, then you're going to cross a Rubicon. If you can then work with that way of looking at things, you'll never go back. And that's basically what happens. Yeah, transformation seems to happen. Yeah. So I understand that you need leader engagement for this because otherwise you've got people that run the controls who may never buy in because they don't experience it themselves. Exactly right. Yeah, we never we never start work without leaders coming out to study their system. Now, and, and of course, you know, they, they kind of go, oh, no, no, John, John, no, no, that's okay. That's, we don't need to do that. We're very open-minded. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? No, no, we won't come out. Unless you come out with us and study your system, we're not going to help you. You know, if we, if we go out into one of your bits of your organization when we do something and change it with the people there then you're gonna you're gonna end up having a train crash because they know things you don't know and they see you do things out of the old mental models and they discredit you for it 
you know so you don't you don't you don't want to train crash so we we won't start we never start without the leaders coming out to study this system and and then you know we help them take responsibility for the plan and part of that from what i've seen is by getting the leaders to study with their people and they're studying the same thing they develop a shared understanding that bridges a yeah. lot of these conflicts between management and the front line that people exactly. try to remedy with these programs they bring in without necessarily exactly. have, yeah. working on that kind of shared understanding. Yeah, that's a very important point that you make because the quality of the relationship is an outcome. You know, a lot, a lot of consultancies think the thing to do, I mean, there's got a lot that's going on in the UK at the moment. They, they think the thing to do is, is to go out and establish trust. Let's work on trusting each other. And I say, oh, fuck off. You know, trust is not a point of intervention. Trust is an outcome. You know, you can dick around with trust exercises, uh, but you still haven't changed your mental models and you go back into a system that's running according to your mental models. Forget it. It's just a waste of time. Yep, I understand. And, uh, but experiencing this as opposed to just intellectually understanding it. And... It brings up too a, a thought I've had, and something I've wanted to run by you in the past too. Is what about when? Because you've got you you talk about design to demand. You help a business design to demand to go put themselves in the customer's shoes. To me, that's very Zen-like. By the way, it's mm -hmm. kind of getting out of your mental models. That's that's what Zen masters try to get people to do: is, is step out of their models into the moment. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Get your people to be present with customers to really hear what they want instead of imposing their own top-down models onto here's what we provide and here's how we segment it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, you mentioned Russell Ackoff. I found he's got a lot of really good videos on YouTube. I understand he's passed now, but he seems pretty eloquent about describing how studying something as a whole is very different from breaking it into its parts. Yeah. And trying yeah. to optimize each one. Yeah. The point I'm getting to in a roundabout way is, well, if you're designing to demand, but what you're selling is what you sell is counterintuitive to most managers. How do you look at your relationship with consulting clients? Because obviously you can't, if you just design to their conscious demand of we want yet another program that fits our mental models. But yet you're challenging your customers' mental models so yeah. they can get more in alignment with what's yeah. going to help yeah. their customers. Yeah. Well, don't worry, we wouldn't do that. You know, if they asked us for teamwork, we wouldn't do it. If they asked us for if they asked us for anything that we don't do, we just say no. Um, but also, you know, uh, you I think you know this. I don't have a sales force, um, you know, because that's push. Um, and I think what's really important about this work is that it comes to us by pull. Mm -hmm. you know, so our, our clients have either worked with us before, so they know they know what it is. They know they've got an organisation to change. They know it needs help orchestrating. They know what the outcome is, but they also know they can't just tell people. You know, they ain't going to do it. You know, so a lot of a lot of our clients have, have worked with us before. Other people come to us because they've seen what we've done in a in another client system. Others come to us because they've, you know, maybe they've listened to something like this or seen a video or read a book and they're curious. Um, because they, they come, those people who are curious do come with a mental model about how to do change, but that's okay because 
we won't, I mean, we won't serve that mental model. We'll help them understand why we do it the way we do it and how that makes it successful. And, you know, we will only do it in the way in which we know we're going to get success, um, basically. Um, but, you know, but the important thing is that you've got to want to change your thinking. Uh, that requires pull, not push. So it's very important for your business in particular to rely on the pull from the marketplace and respond to that. That's and right. My understanding is that's really a lot more common to more businesses than people probably acknowledge because they have these sales systems that they think are yeah. pushing, yeah. actually bringing it yeah. in until they yeah. study it and find out only a very small percentage are actually coming yeah. push most of the time yeah. from pull. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great observation. You know, I can't count the number of call centers I've worked in, you know, where they're incentivized to sell things to customers. Uh, and so, you know, an exercise that you do with leaders in a situation like that is have them go and study the calls with only only one focus. You know, I often send people out with only one question because it's the important question. And the question in this case would be the customers that bought, um, did they pull or were they pushed? And you got to listen to the conversation. And what you learn is exactly what you're saying. The vast majority of them called up to buy something. It was pulled. Well, then, you know, now the leader's mind goes to why are we spending all this money on sales training programs? Right. Why do we have all these sales incentives? Oh, look, here's another thing to study. Because you've got these sales incentives, it drives maladaptive behavior amongst the people in the call center. Because if they've got a call that's clearly not about a sale, right. they'll do their best to get rid of it and pick up another one. Sure. Because... There's points and prizes, you know. So it does, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, I also believe, I, you know, this is, I think, something that's going to transform the web one day, you know, when it turns into pull and not push. At the moment, the whole of the web is about push. Well, that's a lot of my my personal mission, as you know, and uh -huh. that I see, and, and the concept has been around for a while. Matter of fact, I just did a podcast that was about, people have influenced me, and you're one of them. Another mm -hmm. one was Seth Godin, who wrote the, yeah. the late 1990s, early 2000s about permission marketing versus interruption yeah. marketing. Yeah. And about uh, unleashing an idea virus and about how if it's a good idea and it enhances people's lives and enriches them, it may be a different way of looking at a service or a different way of extracting benefits from something, then it's going to spread from person to person more so than it is going to come from interrupting somebody's attention because it makes it so easy to spread ideas that are worthwhile. It seems like you have a lot of ideas that are worthwhile, but you're also dealing with human nature. And it's like every service business should do this, you know, in some way <laughs> or form, it seems. But this is a paradigm change and yeah. pioneers get the arrows sometimes and there's, there's pushback. When you're yeah. when you're challenging and you talk about oh maybe we don't need to do sales I'm sure we can find other functions that these salespeople can serve that would probably be more effective when you reframe things to responding to pull but it might make people feel threatened because they have a model they've developed that they base their livelihood on and mm -hmm. so maybe I understand part of it is so is helping create an environment where people 
see there's new roles that they can serve that are going to be more functional so they're not going to be made mm -hmm. redundant yeah but let me let me agree with your first part you know uh, again it was uh, Deming uh, who who used to say uh, doesn't anybody care about profit you know because he was you know there, there are plenty of leaders uh, in the, in the top echelons of organizations who don't actually give a shit about the performance of the firm what they give a shit about is their deal you know so I, i've been in situations where uh you know I've, I've had i've had top people uh study their system uh, do their plan set it up uh build a prototype and then some of them would see that what this that what this prototype is going to lead to is going to severely damage their current initiative to which is attached a major bonus so they fight it <laughs> sure, sure. you know they they can see like everyone can see this is going to make us a lot more money this is going to be much better for our customers oh but no but it's going to stop me earning my hundred thousand bonus so we're not going to have any of that well how do you address that if you're if you were the major stockholder of a company sitting on the board you could have some direction yeah. over that yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the only person who can address it is the, is the chief executive. Uh, and I've been in situations where the chief executive has stepped on people for doing that, pushed them out of the way, made the right thing happen. But I've also worked in places where, you know, there, one of the things that irritates me about firms these days, is it wasn't like this when I grew up learning my craft in the 80s and 90s, you know. Um, one, of the, one of the kind of dynamics you get is this awful business about chief executives not actually being able to make decisions. You know, uh, everything has to be done by committees uh, and all the rest of it. So in that kind of milieu, you do often find that, that you know, the, the, thing, the, the things they decide are not the optimal things for their system. Interesting. A decision by committee can be dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when I when I was learning my craft, I would meet a chief executive, and we'd agree to start work and we go to work. Uh, these days, it can take more than a year for Vanguard to get involved with a major company because of all the committees and purchasing and procurement and risk management and all kinds of crap gets in the way. Is that part of what Russell Alcoff would talk about breaking things into parts and trying to work on each part separately from the whole. Well, uh, well I, I may be, but you know, on that on that particular issue, uh, he used to say, you know, well, well, you know, here it is. This is what I'm going to do for you. If you have to do all that paraphernalia, I'm not coming. You do it all yourself. I'll turn up when you're ready, but I'm not going to start trying to satisfy all these players. You do it. He made, he gave um, an interesting analogy in one talk that, that struck me as profound and said, what if you wanted to make the best car in the world and yeah. you found the best tires, yeah. the best wheels, the best suspension, the best steering, um, and they're all from different manufacturers, you know, Volvo engine, the BMW suspension, uh, Porsche um, bodywork, and you had all these parts together, could you get in and actually drive it? Yeah, yeah. I've actually brought that up with people and they said, well, you'd have the best car in the world. I'm like, well, the parts wouldn't fit, would they? <laughs> they wouldn't work, yeah. yeah. So, so as part of the learning process, seeing how the system works as a whole through the relationship between the parts 
and yeah. bringing these models of yeah. specialization, drilling too far down into a specialty and missing what's around it. Yeah, and, and you know, to use systems thinking language, the ontology is entirely predictable. You know, so if, if so, what that basically means is the relationship between the parts and the whole is entirely predictable. You know, so you take a take a take a you know a conventional command and control service design where you, you you know you might have a call center front end, or these days you'd have a digital front end on front of the in front of the call center, um, and then you might have back offices, and you manage all of that by activity because uh, you assume that activity was cost. You have to make your budgets. Um, you standardize and specialize the work because you're after economy and um, because you think that's more economical to do that. It's also cheaper cost of training. And what you learn is all of those things get in the way of you doing a good job for your customers every time. You know, so that, that, that opens your mind to the issues and the opportunities. But then you're, as part of the study, what you also do uh, is, is you start understanding, well, how predictable are the value demands, things the customers want from us. And when we study how our system deals with them, from the customer's point of view, how many transactions was that? Uh, and how long was it end to end? And how much money was consumed in doing that? And then when we look at all the things that go on in doing that, how much of that was actually of value to the customer meeting what matters to them and how much of it is created by us because we've created this system. And, you know, so now that's rock and roll. So now they can see an opportunity. They start thinking about, well, well, we could design a system that does that, but it'd be designed on completely different principles. You know, of course, we help them with the principles. You know, one basic principle is, is that, well, if we can understand the predictability of the value demands, then we can build the expertise at the front of that system and give customers what they want. There's a radical idea. And now they know that would be cheaper. If you tell them that right before you start, actually what we're going to do is we're going to kind of, in their language, upskill the front end. I'd never say that. They'd say upskill the front right. end. Sure. Have them take as long as they want to deal with customers so the customers dealt with. They go, oh, no, no you can't do that because it, it would blow their model. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So these ideas that run counter. But another interesting thing I'm getting is that these dynamics are fractal, I guess you'd say, is that and common and predictable because yeah. it's archetypes yeah. of service businesses. And yeah. I had someone tell me recently, well, have you marketed it for this specific kind of business? And I'm like, no, but the issues of transforming in this case to more inbound type marketing are pretty universal. Yeah. And that and, and I think it applies across the board. When you look at things as a system, then you recognize these underlying dynamics, I guess that would be common to all businesses. So yeah. it doesn't so much matter the special type of business, plumbing versus electrical. It matters just the archetype of how they deliver services in general. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I really like what you said about the internet needing to go more inbound. And of course there's laws coming out now that limit things like third-party cookies and the ability to track people. And to me, it, it also aligns with this philosophy or as a method on a bit of philosophy or just anti-philosophy almost of shedding your mental models to be present with the customer. Instead of constraining what you do for them into your specialization, your mental model, your narrow window. Yeah, yeah. And and getting out of your 
mind and and to hear them, to see them and to understand what they want better. But things like big data reduce the customer to a very small data point. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's push and and it costs a lot of money and it's not very reliable and pushes work very well, but people love big data. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, the, the internet could easily be turned around uh, because rather than have have all this tracking going on, which is all start all the start of the push process, yep. which irritates us, doesn't it? You know, absolutely. I, I went I went to buy some walking boots from a, from a shop in town. The, the people weren't very friendly, and they didn't pay any attention to me. So I found out what I wanted. I went on the web and bought it. Okay, so now I've got some boots, walking boots, I bought on the web, and so now that everyone's trying to sell me a bivouac tent. And I'm going, fuck off. I don't, I don't, I never sleep in a tent. What's the matter with you people? But if we turn that around uh, and people said, I want to know more about, you know, you're giving permission then for people to send you information about and also the ability to turn it off. But, you know, it starts with what matters to me, not what matters to you, the pusher. Right. What do I want to pull? You know, what help do I want here? And, and a lot of us use the web like that. Exactly. You know, we, we go search for things that we want. <clears throat> I just taken delivery of, of plantains uh, because I was in I was in a Caribbean country recently and, and I ate some plantains. I, I want to make some of those things. Okay, so I've got plantains and now I've got to think about ways to cook them. What do you do? You Google it and then you find ways to cook them. And I've got what I want. I'm probably now going to have people try and sell me loads of stuff. But anyway, you know, that's that's how most of us use the web. We're looking for something and it could easily be turned around. So I'm in control of the things that I'm pulling, not not someone's got my data and pushing. I think some of us recognize that, but a lot, a lot of businesses still don't. Oh, sure. You know, HubSpot is a company that promotes inbound marketing and purely content marketing. Of course, what you run into is there's a time distortion because it takes time to build content that's worthwhile enough to be worth finding. And then there's um, studies though that show that a lead from inbound marketing costs 30, 35% what an outbound lead costs, what it costs to interrupt somebody to get their attention. So it's about a third the cost. And in spite of that, there's still a predominant belief system that we should be interrupting people. I think people get seduced by big data and all the graphs and just how precisely you can tick somebody off by targeting them by everything you know about them now. Yeah, It just seems extremely invasive. And one thing we run into in marketing is some people try to create an antidote in the form of a buyer persona. Yeah, I think it's maybe a step into at least they're trying to have customer empathy. What, uh-huh. what do you think about those? Do you have an opinion on buyer personas? Uh, well, yeah, uh, just only a small one. You know, wh- why dream up somebody when you've got customers hitting your system every day? Yeah. Get Good out. Point. Right. Understand what matters to all these people that are hitting your system. You know, start to understand what's, what's really going on in demand, and you wouldn't need a persona. Um, it's a joke, really, isn't it? Well, I think it's a joke. I, I'm very skeptical of it for similar reasons. Oh, it's, it's, it's kind of typical agile junk. 
but you know, it keeps people happy and they play their games, but it, you know, it's, it's absolutely useless, no value at all. Well, there's just seems to be this thing in marketing and maybe business management where people want to spend their time on going deeper into models that detach them more from the customer, but give them something to do with their time. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the thing we're discussing, I think I think I, I might have talked with you about this before, but um, we work for one of the largest uh, insurance companies in Scandinavia in their um, uh, life products division. So it's life insurance sales, you know. <laughs> and, like, you know, like all life insurance sales companies, they had salespeople out there with targets to sell particular products that would make the, the business managers very happy. Um, and, you know, they had to study that to find out how suboptimal it was from the customer's point of view. They had to redesign it to make it a pull system. Uh, so, you know, when, when, when any customer calls, we're not in the business of turning up to sell them a product. We're in the business to turn up and find out what matters to them. Uh, the consequence of that is it brings the underwriting closer to the customer because you want the cover you want the way you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it worked. And their sales went up by 35%. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to service the demand that was occurring from a work for, uh, according to what matters to customers. 35% uplift in sales. Now, so you, you think about that as a lesson. Everybody out there who's got a kind of a push sales system will have a lot of sub-optimization going on because of the push and all the dynamics that that creates, not only pissing off the customers are wasting time, having customers buy things that they then reject, all that, all that kind of stuff goes on. <laughs> and if you turn it around and actually work on what matters to people, sales are going to go up. They See, they wouldn't believe that. They think those bloody people won't sell unless we give them an incentive. Ha, ha, ha. And, but that kind of result speaks for itself. It's yeah. that kind of dramatic increase. So then we have people who want to see that kind of increase and I would love to see a 35% increase in sales, unquote. How do I do it in a way that fits my mental models? Well, you can't. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's a challenge. And, and I think your book is very eloquent and is very patient with giving people small enough steps. I'm talking about beyond command and control. And for mm-hmm. the listener, this will be linked to in the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com. If you're on an app, it's linked in the description. I strongly recommend the book. If you go to Amazon, you'll see my review for it. If you look through the reviews, it's a, it's a great book. Um, so I think your your teachings should be worldwide. But what is the scope of where Vanguard actually does work now? Oh well, we uh, we're in eleven countries. Um, uh, we uh, well, well, what is the scope? I think I think the first thing to say is that we're we're quite unusual um, in as much as you know a conventional consultancy company. Uh, wants the their client leaders uh, to always have them in the room when they're thinking, never to think without them. Whereas, whereas we're the opposite of that. You know, we teach people how to how to study the system, uh, redesign the system, we, uh, employ new mental models, never go back to the old ones. Uh, that equips them you know, in a way, you know, because they know, they never go back. They know what to do, um, and we will we carry on supporting people after they've been clients of ours. 
Um, that's, that's good for us because it extends our reach. Sure. Uh, but what we also do is we, we make a lot of the basics available either free or totally cheap as chips uh, because of the number of people that are getting on and learning. And, you know, I, I'm a great believer in one of Russ Aikoff's phrases, as long as you're doing the right thing, if you do it wrong, you still learn. And so they got a lot of uh, tools, if you like, oh, I hate the word, but they got a lot of methods that will help them do some of the right things. And they will therefore, you know, they, they might not be as fast as if they had a Vanguard expert with them. Uh, they might make some mistakes that they wouldn't have made otherwise, but that's okay. You know, you, they'll still learn. So, uh, so our reach is uh, 11 countries and many thousands of people. That's awesome. And for this online materials, where in case a listener's listening and, and isn't somewhere they can see a link, how, where would they find it? Uh, well, on our website, on uh, beyondcommandcontrol.com, I think that's what it's called. I, I don't know, so I never go there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you look for the e-learning system. Yeah, so we'll, we'll have that linked, obviously. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a massive amount of stuff. I mean, I, I, I did it kind of, in all my spare time over about a five-year period, I wrote all this stuff. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was built and recorded some years ago. It's, it's not sexy in modern web parlance, but you know, what I've learned is that doesn't matter because the people who are on there want the know-how. They're not so fussy about how it looks. And anyway, you know, if I had to hire a tech company to refresh it and make it look modern, it would cost me a fortune because it's so large and it's doing its job. You know, it's got all the basics on how do you study, all the basics on how you design. It's got lots of applications, examples. It's got theory, uh, tactics, all kinds of stuff. And you mentioned your way of working with customers is to help them be more independent rather than having to always feel like they yeah. have a consultant guiding them. And that's part of intervention theory. Is that where that's coming from? Yeah, but it's also very important as part of this change. You know, I talk in Beyond Command and Control about a distinction between normative and rational. You know, rational is teach. It doesn't change the mental model. Normative is help people study. It changes their mental model. Um, and when you've helped someone change their mental model, they can solve a lot more problems with the, this different way of thinking. But they also come across novel things. Um, and, you know, typically they get in touch and we help them. Uh, are you available in the U.S. directly or just through the web services now? Only, only through web services in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, uh, I hate to say this to you, Chris, but I've, I've often said to people, I think the U.S. will be the last place that goes in this direction because it's the home of command and control. Well, it's the home of command and control and it just there's just this thing about always the newest management fad that people get immersed yeah. in. And a lot of those are contradictory to the simple truths that are revealed when you, as you say, study your business as a system. And yeah. I, I like to speculate, what if you drew that circle around the system to include a business's media as well and considered that as a service to those who are looking to have questions answered or educate themselves or get more empowered to get more value out of whatever it is you offer. And uh, a lot of the types of businesses I've heard make examples of are those break fix system. You need it when you need it. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of purchases people make or services they engage with if a little more research ahead of time where people yeah. are pulling for learning. 
and that's an opportunity to empower them. And actually, I did a pod, this is the first podcast I did last May, was the story about two companies that sell subwoofers because I wanted subwoofer for my home system because I only have small mm-hmm. speakers. And one company, as soon as I started doing research, I saw their ads everywhere. Uh-huh. Everywhere I went. And it, it got annoying because I know enough to know that by these tracking methods, they're incentivizing big data, which knows more about me than I care to share, fairly private person. And that data sometimes um, gets found by hackers and sold on the dark web and things like that. Uh-huh. And there's this other company that did none of that. But as soon as you start going in these online um, enthusiast communities for hi-fi and, and audio file type things, you start to see that there are some business owners who engage with those communities and listening to what people want, making innovations, sharing the benefits of those innovations. So I bought from another company that, and their website, and this is a company, um, oh gosh, now I'm not remembering the name of it, um, Rhythmic. Um, R-Y-T-H-M-I-K, spelled funny, but they have a special technology that makes the bass more natural sounding, uh-huh. like distortion with a special kind of feedback loop. Uh-huh. And, they, and they're the only ones with this particular way of doing it that removes uh-huh. issues others do, and they educate the consumer about what to look for and what yeah. find. Yeah. Here's the benefits of how we do it. I don't see any evidence of push marking, and I felt so much better about that company. Absolutely. Apart from that. Absolutely. Because of and it's, a, it's an ethic that we employ too. You know, I mean, we're not in the business of selling woofers, but we're, we're in the business of helping people make this change. And so, you know, if, if people approach us with questions, we answer the questions. And we tell them what, we tell them what to go do. You know, we know that if we help people, we know eventually it will come back. Um, you know, not obviously all, maybe not all the people come back. That's fine. Sure. But it's this old adage about, it's a, you know, give and you will receive. Yeah, about service, it's about yeah. getting into customer's shoes. And that's really powerful. So if a listener, well, let me switch gears a little bit, actually. I'm thinking about our listeners, and a lot of them seem to be consultants or want to be consultants or coaches, um, but a lot of them feel like they should write a book and haven't yet and you've written some really good books yeah how what's your routine for creating a book how do you get yourself to do it oh absolute clarity about uh what it's going to be about uh, and then absolute clarity on the structure um and then from there i i, I always start at the start um and I work because what, what I try to do when I write a book is to carry the reader through. Okay. You know, I want I want to, you know, particularly with Beyond Command and Control, as you know, I introduce some ideas and I build on those ideas as I go through the book and give various examples uh, and illustrations and that kind of thing. Um, so, but I think the most important thing, in fact, I was talking with a colleague who wants to write a book about everything that's going wrong with Agile. Um, and he's, he's got loads and loads of information, but what he needs, first of all, is a clarity on what's the, what's the structure going to look like. You know, I mean, we know the main message, but you know, let, let's, let's work out a way to put that on the table and then do the necessary you know, 
structural things to lay it out. So do you just see the project as a whole designed for a particular purpose? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when, when one of my books was called The Whitehall Effect. <laughs> and I, I thought about that book as my Dear John letter to Whitehall. Uh, Whitehall's where our government sits. Right. Um, because I'd, I'd spent 10 or more years going down to Whitehall to explain them what they're doing wrong with public sector reform, how what they're doing is actually making things worse, and gave, giving you examples of how to make it better with you know, very strong results, uh, you know, plenty of evidence from all over the world. Um, and, you know, they, they just couldn't, it wouldn't fit the political narrative, so they just ignored me. And then and I thought, I'm not going anymore. You know, fuck them. I've, I've put so much energy into this, they don't listen. So I wrote a book. And it's a book about everything they've done uh, since, since Margaret Thatcher uh, and what's wrong with it, but also examples of what good looks like and what the economics of good are. Um, and so now if I ever get a call from Whitehall, I say, well, read the book. When you finish that, you want to talk to me, come and talk to me. I, I live about an hour outside London. Come here. I'm not coming down there. And so was it therapeutic for you to put this in a book? <laughs> yeah. I would think so. I mean, to me, it would be. It's like, again, sometimes there's this thing of you feel like if you, you know, the movie The Sixth Sense oh, no. came no. out is about this kid who could see ghosts and nobody else could see them. Okay. There's a meme around this I see ghosts and nobody else does, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Seems when you start to see things as a system, you see things that other people don't get. And like you say, yeah, yeah. just tell yeah. them that. Yeah. You know, and I run into this when people want to immediately jump to hyper-targeted marketing and, and massive interruption and seeing people as a data point on the graph instead of the listening and the empathy. And there are and it, it's challenging sometimes because people you don't always have the opportunity of being able to interact directly with people. You have to look at their behavior. Or maybe for digital only businesses or people who primarily deliver like courses on the web or something where you may not always have a chance to talk with your customers, but I think you can get some indications from the questions people ask search engines and what are people wanting to learn? Yeah. Develop good yeah. answers for that and empower people. Instead yeah. of just trying to rank high, it's like, well, if somebody lands on this page, I want them to get the absolute most out of it. Then yeah. Yeah. over time it will rank high because you know, people will engage deeper with it. Uh, but it is a, a switch in thinking, and it reminds me of how Walt Disney designed Disney World so the buildings are about two-thirds size to make the customers feel larger, if that makes sense. I didn't know that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've been to Disney, but maybe I went when I was smaller. No, I didn't. Um, I went there when I was six foot four. Yeah, <laughs> Disney's great at any age. Yeah, here may not be the happiest place on earth, but it's a, it's a bit yeah. of a diversion and to me an expression of one man's vision. And yeah, yeah. Walt Disney is a guy who could combine creativity with business success. Yeah, and yeah. he was in touch with something that people wanted, but maybe couldn't quite yet articulate for themselves. Yeah, because nothing yeah. like that. Here's, here, here's another related thought, you know. Um, I, I, I work with a number of startups, and you know, if they have a common problem, it's 
is because they're tech people and they, they, they start with the functionality of the tech and what can the tech do? Uh, and they got this idea that this will create a service and they don't have any customers. Um, right. So they build it thinking the customers will come um, and then they find that actually it's not working very well. When, when they get out of their box and start understanding what's going on for the people that are landing there, uh, they learn that actually this is, this is not a great business idea. Um, and with some of them, uh, what you learn is by studying demand, they maybe should create a better business. Some of them do, uh, because now we understand this demand that's in this domain, you know, that's in this area that we're working. But actually, we can service that. Uh, we never thought of that before. You know, so there's a great danger in, in just believing that if you make something because you've got the functionality. I mean, it's the same, it's the same with um, all this digitization of services, you know. Sure. All, all service organizations have front end now uh, that basically goes, fuck off, we're not going to talk to you, talk to the bot, go online, do this, do that. And if you really work hard, you might struggle and get through to a person. And so many customers have to. And so many customers go away. It's crazy. And, and these voicemail labyrinths that businesses create where you press five to get this service that kind of sounds like what you want, but no, that's not the right one. You need to go back and wait in the labyrinth again, try number three. Yeah, yeah. or you explain to the bot four times or five times or seven times, you know, your definition of why you're calling and the bot doesn't understand it. And, and I encounter these things. I think of you because I think this person doesn't know about John Seddon because they are definitely not designing this from the customer's point. <laughs> they're not seeing the waste. They're looking at they're looking at this the wrong way. So no, yeah, of course, because um, they're all they're all drinking uh, you know trebles and throwing money in the air because they got their bonuses for digital activation. Yeah, and and isn't it the case? And I. Remember this from your book, if I'm remembering correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, if not, that you don't want to put digital first, you want to put it second or third and really study everything, study your system, take the digital out until you fix yeah. the system, and then yeah. you might find something much simpler works much better. Exactly. It's uh, yeah, the way I describe it is IT last. <clears throat> and that because if you if you do IT last. And, you know, step one is to study it, get knowledge. Step two, redesign it to make it more effective for customers. Step three, pull the IT in. Everything you're now going to write is going to be useful because you know. Yep. Uh, that's a radical thought, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's so much cheaper too. You know, I mean, I've been approached by a lot of the big IT software companies around the world. You know, they've heard about me and they heard about my work and, you know, they, they, they want it in their portfolio kind of thing. Uh, and after they start to understand what this is really all about and the whole concept of IT last, they're just not interested anymore because IT last to them represents a major fall in revenue. And I'm telling them, yeah, but it's a massive rise in reputation. That's right. Which will probably net more revenue. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People can trust you because yeah, you're yeah. first. Yeah. Well, are there any thoughts that you'd like to leave with the listener um, that you think would be helpful uh, if they're a small business owner, entrepreneur, marketer, consultant, and starting to consider and embrace some of these ideas about design to demand outside and studying the system from the customer's point of view? Well, I would say anybody is listening who works in a transactional service, 
Um, most services are transactional in as much as they start with a customer demand, <clears throat> you know, so utilities, health, most service organizations that are providing services of one sort or another are like that. <clears throat> then uh, first thing I would say is you've got to understand that demand is the big economic lever. It really is, you know, focus on getting knowledge about that. It'll open the box for you. Um, and all the other things about, you know, how your current system is failing to deliver against what matters become easier to understand once you've got that basic platform down. That's awesome. And, and, and um, take your time. But the important thing about this is that um, you've got to make change on the base of knowledge and the knowledge that you're going through studying. If you make change on the base of good knowledge, then you'll be able to predict in what direction you will improve, but you won't know by how much, but you can predict improvement. That's the important thing. Knowledge leads to prediction. Um, and if you want to, you know, if, if you want to just, one of the things I've been doing recently is, I don't know whether you've seen this, I'm, I'm doing five minute tutorials, okay? And they, they are just sort of condensed essence, Vanguard thoughts. Uh, and actually the first one is called Demand is the Economic Lever or something like that. Um, those thoughts might help you orientate yourself to what to go look at, what to study. Yeah, nice to have that reminder on your shoulder over time so you don't get steered back into the top yeah. management thinking, which is always a temptation because everybody else around seems to think that way if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been excellent, John. I really appreciate you doing this interview. I appreciate all well, our conversations over time and what you've done for the world with the Vanguard method and the Vanguard group. I think you're working. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the invitation to do this. It's been fun. It's good to see you as ever. As always. My pleasure, John. Hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. So long, Chris. So take care. Thanks again for listening to Thought Leadership Studio, episode 36, interview with John Seddon, the founder of the Vanguard Method, Beyond Command and Control, are breakthroughs for service businesses in marketing. If you haven't subscribed to Thought Leadership Studio, please subscribe. If you are listening on an app, please also check out the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com where we have resource links, partial transcription with some side notes as some bonus content, and the free marketer's guide to strategic thought leadership to help you in organizing the building blocks of your own thought leadership. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris McNeil, your host, and look forward to seeing you next week. Thought Leadership Studio.